Hi folks, welcome back for another episode of Bibliology, or if you're here for the first time, I welcome you. My name is Patrick, your host. This is the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars and academic theologians about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith today. And today on the show, you'll get to hear my recent conversation with Dr. David Kramer of Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary and Professor Miles Wernz of Abilene Christian University in Texas. David is managing editor of the Institute of Mennonite Studies and also a teaching pastor in Indiana in the States, while Miles is an associate professor of theology and director of Baptist Studies at his university. I spoke to them about their recent volume exploring the various often opposing forms of Christian thought around the topic of pacifism and nonviolence. Yes, it gets pretty theological on this episode, and we all love that. You can find the book entitled A Field Guide to Christian Nonviolence, published with Baker Academic in the description. And I hope the following conversation benefits you as much as it did me in speaking to and learning from adherents of a Christian tradition that is not part of my background, but which is beautiful and fascinating and might have some profound things to teach us all. Um, so let's get on to the conversation then without further ado and hope you enjoy it. Hello, David and Miles. Thank you for coming on the show, and it's great to have you on. It's great to be on. Thank you for inviting yeah, us. This is, of course, going to be an interview on your upcoming book uh, with Baker Ab- Academic, which is, of course, called A Field Guide to Christian Nonviolence, Key Thinkers, Activists, and Movements for the Gospel of Peace. And um, this, uh, of course, any of the listeners can find in the description. Prior to discussing the the weeds, getting into the weeds of this book, I'd be curious to ask you uh, both some questions so the audience can get to know you both a bit personally, uh, find out about the humans behind the academics, um, so to speak. (laughs) So the first question, uh, first fun question I have is, do either of you have any niche or unexpected pastimes? And I suppose maybe, David, you can go first. Sure. Um, well, one unexpected pastime for me being a pacifist is that I used to play American football. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I don't think I knew that. That's fine. Yeah. In high school, my, my team won the state championship. So I was, um, a part of a, a championship team. I have a big ring that I still <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Uh, but that was before my pacifist days. I'm not, I still watch American football. I'm not sure how I feel about it um, ethically, but I still enjoy that. That's, that's, fasc- that's fascinating. It's like, are there many pacifists who have an issue with that kind of contact sport or? Well, I don't know if it's a pacifist specific thing. I mean, I think certainly there would be some pacifist communities where where that would be problematic. But I think more so it's um, becoming an ethical concern around like exploitation of the players and um, things like concussions becoming more of an issue. So I think there are some interesting ethical questions and miles has actually done some work on sort of the ethics of sport mm-hmm. um but i don't know if i don't know if there's a sharp line like if pacifists don't watch football <laughs> i don't think that but it's typically okay. true but yeah and you miles any uh odd pastimes oh i've gotten into uh i've gotten into into vegetable 
gardening the last couple of years. It's been something I've wanted to do for a number of years, but the last uh, four years has become uh, something I look forward to every year. Um, so one of the things I've started doing this past year, I guess is that's kind of an odd, uh, not something you would normally expect of an academic. I've gotten into CrossFit, which is not something I ever expected, <laughs> but it has been, it's been really great and I've really enjoyed it a lot. So I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm coming out as a, as a CrossFit, you know, enthusiast or something, but is, is that I've, something to do with like competitive weightlifting? Uh, it can be, you can have people that really take it super seriously. Um, I do it just for the exercise and it's been just fantastic on that front, but yeah, there's people that go nuts with it, and, okay. uh, have competitions and, and whatnot. So mm -hmm. I go, I, I work out with a bunch of like 40 year olds, so it's not, we're not gym rats or anything. It's just a bunch of 40 year old guys trying to, uh, not get hurt. Okay. Well, well you've been getting more active during the pandemic. My new, uh, pastime during the pandemic is collecting vinyl, like yeah. uh, mm -hmm. record albums. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I sit around and <laughs> listen to, you know, old nineties Christian albums and stuff that I've been getting. That's <laughs> good. That's a very expensive hobby, but <laughs> that's why I'm scared <laughs> of it. But yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> and, and by the way, um, obviously the listeners don't know, but just to clarify, that's not a halo behind me. Um, that's just the the light is in a bit of an on lighting. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyways, St. Um, Patrick interviewing us. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> exactly. Second fun question is, uh, and this is of course also for both of you, and Miles can begin this time. Is if you could ask a human Bible character not named Jesus one question, what would it be? Oh my gosh, that's a good question. I think I would ask Peter what it was like to walk on water. Like, what is that phenomenon like? I think I'm just curious. Since you picked Peter, I'll go with Paul. And I think what I would ask Paul is, what was going on in Corinth? That oh, that's those a good letters. Because, yeah. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I don't know. What about a third of the story. Yeah, and I mean, I'm a... I'm a convinced egalitarian through through my understanding of scripture, but some of those passages, I'll admit, are kind of hard to square with that. So, like, you know, how can the same person who writes Galatians 3.28, I think it is, about neither male nor female, also be writing about, you know, being silent in church and wearing head coverings and all that? So I'm interested in what was going on there. Yeah, that's 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 a good one because um, your question is a lot better than mine, David. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you know um, I, I've heard a lot of weird theories about what's going on in Corinthians, like uh, that um, the, that long hair was a symbol of reproductive fertility uh -huh. and, and all this uh, stuff. And uh -huh. I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> I I I think you have to be very brave to take a firm stance on what's going on <laughs> in that mm -hmm. church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Of course, the most significant, uh, well, the reason you guys are on this podcast is, of course, of course, because you are professional theologians. And um, I would be curious to know, um, speaking of strange uh, things, um, what is the strangest theological position um, you have ever encountered? And either of you can uh, go for that one this time. Hmm. Strangest theological position. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that uh, maybe in an unexpected way, but uh, 
I saw one of my friends on Twitter the other day say like, Christians believe some of the strangest things and, and like, she's a Christian herself. And when I think about the doctrine of the Trinity or of the incarnation, it's like, it's hard for me to think up a stranger doctrine than that. Mm. <laughs> and as, you know, an Orthodox Christian myself, like I, I hold to those things, but yet I would have never invented that if I was starting a religion myself. <laughs> so um, I've been to, you know, I've been to conferences and stuff where I've heard some off the wall um, theological ideas. I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head and nothing's coming to me, but for me, like made up beliefs are sometimes less strange than what I actually think is, is the mm -hmm. truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to follow up on David's and uh, I'm going to cheat on the answer and say that probably resurrection from the dead is this is the strangest thing that, that Christians believe that I think is also true, but it's just weird, you know, particularly when there's so many, uh, I think, cultural theological parodies of resurrection of the dead, like zombies, for example, mm. Um so there's lots of ways that in which it it trickles down into popular imagination, but the weird part about it is that Christians take this to be true, right? Mm. This is just yeah. I to, to give you to give you a more straight answer, I did have an experience once where I was by far in the minority view at a conference that was committed to um, conditionalism or sometimes called annihilationism, and I don't I don't think that view is particularly strange, but it was a strange experience for me being at a conference surrounded by people as convinced of that view as you could be of anything when I wasn't personally convinced of that view. And so just sort of phenomenologically being in a, in a um, context where I was among the convinced, but I wasn't personally convinced was a pretty strange experience for me. It was a lot of fun, but it was kind of strange. <laughs> Uh, well, that's interesting that you say that because that's something I've noticed about um, uh, conditionalists. And of course, I'm not not uh, not giving away my card here. I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna say uh, um, what my view of the topic is. But like they they do hold to the position very fervently, and they're like it's a it seems to be a huge part of their theological lens, you know. And so mm -hmm. I'm glad someone else has noticed that. Yeah. Um, and I would also cheat on what uh, cheat in the same way you two cheated by saying that the strangest <laughs> thing, the strangest belief I hold to is the belief that a crucified Messiah should be worshipped. Mm -hmm. So right, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Uh, that's that's of course the whole point of First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter one, isn't it? So <laughs> yeah, no, that was a that was a good way that you two answered the question. So no, that's cool. Um, we might uh, we might get on to talking about the book at this stage. So um, at the at the outset, you know, this is this book, and just to this will be good to clarify for the listeners. This book is um, you say that it's not an apologetic for nonviolence. Uh, this book, um, and you also um, I can quote you here saying, "Experience has taught us that arguments for and against nonviolence." rarely change the mind of the one holding the contrary view. We do not aim, therefore, to convince non-pacifist Christians to become pacifists by reading this book. Um, so I'd be curious to know, um, given this disclaimer, um, how you both came to embrace an ethic of nonviolence, or was this, you know, 
uh, something that you both grew up with? Yeah, I don't for for neither David or myself um was this something that we uh grew up as a as a matter of the the Christian traditions that we were a part of. Um so for me it began this the searching out of this question began uh around 2001. So I was uh it was in seminary at the time. And this was this is the same year as uh, the 2001 attacks on New York City when the the World Trade Center collapsed. And so I was in uh, I was in class that day, and uh, administrative assistant came in and told us that something had happened and we needed to turn on the TV. And so we did and sat watching the TV for a couple of hours. And so all of us were just kind of in a daze trying to comprehend what had just happened. And so after I after I left the building that day was walking out to the car and heard very distinctly in my, like, I remember very distinctly, like walking out to the car and that the words from the Sermon on the Mount began to kind of come to mind um, that we are to love our enemies. And I just thought this is such a, this doesn't like these words make no sense in light of what I've just been witnessing. Uh, So that was, I mean, that was the first moment that I, I recall feeling some sense of contradiction between uh, the violence of the world and and the call of the gospel. And so the next 20 years then became a process of continuing to ask that question and doing a lot of reading. It became the pro- one of, it became the topic of uh, my dissertation and the first book and a bunch of other stuff. And so um, that's kind of where it began for me. It's just kind of trying to put the pieces together and to, to ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian in a world that doesn't seem to be getting any less violent? So just before we move on to David, what you're saying is the strangest theological position you've ever encountered is that you should love your enemies. That, that's what you're right. saying. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Yeah. I think in some ways, uh, I think in some ways the the command to love your enemies is at the heart of the gospel. Not only because it's it appears in because it's in the mouth of Jesus, but as Paul describes it in Romans, um, this is how we know what God's love is: that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. Um, and so, in the Gospels, that Jesus is praying for his the ones who are killing him while he is dying. Uh, I think just reinforces that this is the this is the heart of the mystery of the gospel: that God um, forgives those that are the enemies of God. Yeah, I think um, what we say there about nonviolence isn't even specific to nonviolence. I, I I grew up studying a lot of Christian apologetics, just more broadly. Um, I uh, in seminary did a master's degree in philosophy of religion, and so was you know reading all of the kind of arguments of skeptics and and Christian theists back and forth and. What I found from experience personally is um, what that tends to do is help solidify the position that you have and, you know, maybe reinforce it, bolster your confidence in it. Um, But uh, I don't want to universalize this. I'm sure some people have become convinced by those to change their views. But for me, um, yeah, 9-11 was also a significant moment um, for me. I think it was the following year I took an ethics class where I wrote a paper for my professor who I knew was a pacifist and the paper's title was a critique of pacifism. And I was just like coming at him (laughs) and um, 
it was more the witness of his life over the years as kind of a mentor of mine where I started to see like, okay, there's some kind of, as Miles was describing, like a a unity here of the faith that it just sort of ties it together in such a compelling way. And so I don't think of nonviolence as some sort of ethical add-on to the faith, but it, I think, really becomes in some ways sort of the glue that helps it all hang together and make sense for me now. Um, so it was really the witness of others. I did read, you know, some of those more apologetics for nonviolence over time. And those helped answer questions for me about how that might, you know, square with certain passages of, of the Bible um, that don't seem to support nonviolence um, in an obvious way. So it's not that there's no role for that. It just wasn't kind of the the major thing that changed my mind over time. Hmm. It's interesting that you both mentioned 9-11. When that, uh, when that happened, I, I actually remember it as well. Um, but I was actually five years old at the time. <laughs> um, and so I just remember coming home from, uh, from uh, uh, junior infants. That's what we call our first year of uh, primary mm-hmm. school. And uh, yeah, the, that was just the news was on all day. <laughs> and uh, everyone was very emotional, even, even over here. So just, uh, mm-hmm. just goes to show what a monumental event that was just in so many mm-hmm. ways really getting on to the what an, a non-violent christian ethic actually is you know and um, it, it might be useful just to for one of you just to uh, spend some time on this so um you note in the introduction to the book that most christians assume that a non-violent christian ethic um they assume that it boils down to the equivalent of a modern day version of the schleim confession i hope i pronounced that right so what is this schleim confession and uh, why is this outsider assumption so common? Well, the Schleitheim confession was an early uh, confession of the radical reformers. So this was, you know, within the first decade of the Reformation, when you have the radical Reformation, those that we now refer to as Anabaptists, uh, which initially was kind of a pejorative term, but they sort of owned it. Um, And, you know, while other traditions made confessions that were maybe more focused on doctrinal distinctives. The Schleitheim Confession focused more on um, sort of how Christians are called to live in the world. Um, And essentially at that time, they made a sharp distinction between the community of faith and society or the world. And so it was a very dualistic kind of um, approach. And one of the distinctive markers of the community of faith is that they renounce the sword or violence in any way. So it's sort of that non-resistance view drawing from the Sermon on the Mount of resist not the evil doer and turn the other cheek and, and that type of thing. So they may have had a place for the sword in God's providence, but that was specifically for the state and that wasn't for believers. And so um, that kind of view of what um, pacifism is has kind of gotten frozen in time and people continue to think, oh, if you don't um, hold a just war or something, you must be like those 16th century Anabaptists. And what we try to do in the book is to say, well, focusing specifically on the 20th and 21st century, we see all kinds of different Um, approaches that would identify as nonviolent that don't map onto that sort of strict 
dualistic kind of view of the Schleitheim confession. So that's sort of what that um, misnomer is that we're trying to overcome in the book. Yeah. And something that I really appreciate that you do in the book is that you're, you know, you're highlighting all these different movements and you're not just highlighting uh, the good. You're also highlighting the the bad and the ugly um, <laughs> as well. Could one of you give an example of um, a, what you call a flawed and harmful understanding of nonviolence that you explore in this book? Hmm. I would say um, as we're describing these eight traditions, we're not necessarily pointing to winners and losers among them. <laughs> so I think we give examples um, of some flawed individuals, um, but I don't think any of those are so representative of any of the eight streams we described that Miles or I would say, stay away from that form of mm -hmm. nonviolence. Um, I think when one view of nonviolence becomes reified as like the only view at the expense of others, that could be a flawed understanding. And so um, I do think there was a tendency um, in the 20th century for many people to latch on to our first view that we call nonviolence of Christian discipleship and to sort of assume that is what nonviolence is at the expense of other forms and almost to the point where other forms were seen as in some, in some ways like less faithful. So those forms of nonviolence mm -hmm. that are trying to be more effective politically or what have you are somehow um, strain from the straight and narrow of this sort of communal form of nonviolence. So I think right. if, if you um, take one completely at the expense of other possible expressions, that starts to get problematic in my mind. Yeah. Part of the, one of the interesting things that I think we realized as we were writing this book is that there's so much, there's a lot of tension among the different uh, proponents of Christian nonviolence. And there's some interesting divides that begin to emerge among the types uh, or the streams. So, for example, they don't all agree about, like David was just pointing out, they don't all agree about the role that the state should or the government should play with respect to how Christians enact Christian nonviolence. Uh, they don't all agree with respect to what even counts as violence or where our focus should be uh where our focus should be um they don't all agree with respect to whether or not say it counts as violence if someone uh destroys a a weapon of violence is that a violent act if you if you go about uh like tearing down the things which are causing death and destruction within human society is that does that count um so there's all sorts of they 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 all lay claim to this 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 motif of Christian nonviolence, but they, uh, in doing so, there's a lot of interesting disagreements that emerge. Um, so one of the things we wanted to highlight within the book was that yeah, some of these disagreements are really productive and invite us to think uh, pretty broadly and creatively about about what it means to bear witness to uh, to God's peace in the world. Hmm. It's, it's interesting that you note that they don't agree on the definition of violence because that's definitely something I've thought about as well. You know, mm -hmm. you know what actually is violence? It's such a weird term mm -hmm. when you think about it because, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm sure there are many pacifists out there who would believe that um, even something like um, judo 
even though the whole point of it is it's a meant sure. to be like a, a non-violent form of mm-hmm. resistance even i'm sure some of them would even say that's violence or um aikido mm-hmm. or whatever and so uh-huh yeah i mean one of the one of the things that occurs throughout the 20th century is that i think the the discussions surrounding nonviolence begin in one location in particular that begin in kind of the international the realm of the international conflict and so uh the chapter on realist nonviolence begins with the discussion of Reinhold Niebuhr, who was a 20th century Christian ethicist and theologian, and the ways in which his work, he was a he was a pacifist at one point and then turns against it. And then uh, you have a, a variety of respondents to Niebuhr over the course of the 20th century. But anyway, violence begins largely discussed as a question of public policy or international engagements. And then over the course of the 20th century, that that discussion of violence moves from it being described as something which is out there, something which is happening as countries collide, and it becomes uh, recognized as something which is much more intimate to us. Mm. And so along the way, people begin to describe not just the ways in which wars are conducted as forms of violence, but also the ways in which uh, violence... um, yeah, violence in, violence involves uh, our intimate relationships. It involves uh, questions of gender and sexuality. It involves questions of uh, the ways in which we set up society. You know, so the liberationist chapter really delves into questions of um, to what degree is violence being perpetuated by systems and structures, even if it's not the direct action of an individual as such. Um, So it moves from being kind of this abstracted something that's happening out there to a recognition that violence occurs all the time. And it occurs in intimate ways and in sometimes unseen ways. Um, And it doesn't always correspond to an individual person throwing a punch. Yeah. But it's it's occurring all over the place. Hmm. I'd be curious to know, um, and either of you can answer this, of course, um, which uh, which two perspectives on nonviolence that you document in the book would be most at odds with each other? Do you think? Mm, I have my suspicions. So I'm curious to hear what David has to say. What do you What do you think? Yeah, I think there could be some interesting pairings. I mean, it it kind of depends on what what they're at odds over. So, for mm-hmm. example, um, one that you might not, or two that you might not think of as being in conflict might be realist nonviolence and liberationist nonviolence. Realist nonviolence is what Miles was talking about earlier with uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, who he was not himself a pacifist um, for most of his career, but he he develops this view that comes to be known as Christian realist, which basic, basically says um, all of our lives are in some ways enmeshed in sin and uh egoism and that type of thing. And and as much as we might try to extract ourselves from those things, we're always going to have um, ethical ambiguity and compromise. And really, at the end of the day, the goal for society is to develop a relative peace, not necessarily what we might think of as like an eschatological peace, but just sort of a I think he, he uses the phrase a tolerable balance of egoisms, <laughs> basically mm-hmm. saying like each nation is just trying to uh, get their piece of the pie, if you will. And if we can kind of have a balance of those powers, um, that's going to be the way to have the best sort of relative stability. And so 
the nonviolent realists are in some ways engaged in that project of saying, can we at least get nations to stop dropping bombs on each other? And how, how can we best do that? Liberationists, on the other hand, and we focus specifically on Latin American liberation. So this is a view that develops from the global south, from communities and countries who basically were the um, the recipients of that kind of uh, geopolitical realist approach, and they saw sort of the, uh, the the flip side of that in a lot of economic and political oppression that, in some ways, resulted from you know Cold War type dynamics. And so, what what they're trying to do is not to say, let's just freeze a um, stalemate that provide some amount of stability because that stability itself as they as they identify is predicated on many forms of violence so it's extracting their resources it's exploiting them economically and that type of thing and so for them nonviolence means um some sort of revolution not taking up arms but um bringing about a revolution in society itself and so, again, even though both of those we identify as more on the politically active side of, of sort of our two major ways of thinking about nonviolence, they're doing so from radically different perspectives and contexts. Yeah, the two that I think would have the most interesting conversation, um, there's a bunch of them that I think would be interesting pairings. The two that I think would have a really interesting conversation would be maybe the liberationists and the apocalyptic nonviolence folks. So just briefly, apocalyptic nonviolence refers to the, so it operates out of the premise that nothing to do with zombies, no? Nothing to do with zombies, not at all. (laughs) Uh, So apocalyptic nonviolence operates from the premise that the real enemy for creation is death. And so for the Christian to be engaged in the world is to be struggling against the powers of death, which appear, um, as William Stringfellow, one of the figures in that chapter, the way he puts it is that death has all sorts of powers and principalities which are funneling creation toward death as fast as it can. And so for the Christian uh, to be engaged in the gospel is to oppose those forces of, of death in the world. And so for him, that means that it doesn't count as violence if what you're doing is to dismantle those things which are causing death. And so to kind of give one example, uh, he was friends with a couple of uh, renegade Catholic priests, Daniel and Philip Berrigan. And so one of the things that they did during the 1970s is they broke into a draft office in, uh, in Maryland, stole a bunch of draft cards and set them on fire outside the uh, outside the draft office using homemade napalm that they had created. And so they 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 weren't trying to like end the Vietnam War in doing that, but they were trying to help people to see that this is a very real struggle that's taking place. And so it's kind of dramatizing the this this conflict between the gospel and death um and doing that. But so it has all sorts of predis- you know, so you can start getting into some some kind of some interesting places with that. You know, what does it mean to what does it mean uh, to beat a a sword into a plowshare, right? So, um, where I think their conflict with where their their 
conflict with the liberationists might come into play is that what if, uh, so for example, if the apocalypticists say, yeah, it's fair game for us to go destroying things like uh, nuclear installations or destroying uh, destroying weapons of war or destroying, say, uh, what if what if we what if we decide that say a pipeline an oil pipeline is causing havoc upon its in like on, upon the environment? Does it can is it is it right and good for um, a Christian who's committed to nonviolence to oppose that, right? But on the other hand, uh, pipelines and these sorts of things they do provide jobs and help elevate people out of out of poverty in a kind of way, and so. Um, in destroying those those things, are we also destroying people's livelihoods at the, at the same time? And so, if liberationists identify poverty and economic oppression as one of the key like instances of violence in the world, uh, and the apocalypticists say that no, this is actually this is an instance of death that's being perpetuated, then we have a really interesting conversation at hand. Hmm. So that one is identifying it as one of the machinations of death, and the other hypothetically might identify it as like something that might provide people jobs and a livelihood to help elevate them out of poverty. So, um, so, I mean, this is kind of one hypothetical and maybe I'm just kind of, you know, I don't know that it would be interesting to kind of have those, those paired together. But. Yeah. Can we still have that happen or are they, are they dead by now? Oh, no, 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 These are, these are all live and these are all live options. I think um, oh, that right. I can, I can think of people that, that I can think of, of folks who who enact these things and kind of uh, make these arguments on a regular basis. So okay, okay, yeah. I'd like to move on to talk about probably the most famous advocates of Christian nonviolence, and of course, you can't write a book on Christian nonviolence without mentioning Martin Luther King. Uh, the listeners would be curious to know um, what traditions that you cover in this book um, does he align most closely with, and why? That's a good question. Uh, so King is, King is probably like, you're, you're right. King, I think for, for most folks is probably the most, the, the figure most readily associated with, with Christian nonviolence. So we, sh he shows up in our book in a chapter entitled, uh, political nonviolence or nonviolence as political practice. And so there we discuss him alongside, um, other folks who have enacted nonviolence as a way of, uh, breaking open, Political possibilities for for uh, in, like in internal politics, uh, Caesar Chavez in the American scene is another figure who kind of exercised the same sort of tactics uh, as King did during the civil rights movement. Um, so King, I mean, his way of thinking about nonviolence is is tricky, uh, and this is this gets to kind of one of the questions. I think the way that we structure the book is that there's lots of figures who could reasonably have they they fit within one stream they kind of they cross streams as it were like they fit within multiple places and king is a great example here that his his use of nonviolence is at this is at once both tactical and pragmatic but also principled and derives and and rises up out of a out of, out of a deep spiritual well um so there's a chapter in which we describe nonviolence nonviolence is mysticism. And so one of the one of the key influences upon King is a guy named Howard Thurman, who is much more is provides like the linchpin of the mysticism chapter. 
Um, so King, I mean, he he exercises nonviolence in a way which is tactical, which is pragmatic, which is uh, oriented toward its political outcomes. But at the same time, it's not to say that he, that's all that it is, that he has a, has a deep uh, spiritual well that he's drawing from, that he, in his letter from a Birmingham, a letter from Birmingham prison, uh, describes the process of nonviolence as being both that which is uh, prudentially organized and intended to kind of create tension in a situation to produce some sort of political change, but also that which requires people who are going to do it to be um, spiritually prepared to undergo, to pray, right? You have to pray in order to do this, not just, you can't just go out and do this in the street and then expect that when trouble comes that you're going to be able to act appropriately, but you have to kind of be spiritually prepared for the struggle ahead. So, Well, what's interesting about King is he also is influenced by the realists as well. So he mm -hmm. writes specifically mm -hmm. about his own training. Um, you know, he went to seminary and got a doctorate in theology. So he's, he's a theologian in addition to a civil rights leader, but um, he um, later on in his life starts connecting his political nonviolence to geopolitical nonviolence. And that actually starts to get him into some trouble where he's drawing connections between the civil rights movement and the call to end the Vietnam War as an mm -hmm. unjust war. Mm -hmm. And some who were involved with him in the civil rights movement thought if we start coming across as pacifist in that way, that might lose support for our movement in, on the domestic scene. And so all of that to say, while we do have these different streams and we try to place people in the one that sort of most closely um, highlights something unique about their view, we also know that everyone's complicated and has multiple influences and these streams really do flow together in some interesting ways. Hmm. And uh, Miles, you you alluded to um, uh, King kind of being in a something along the lines of the mystical uh, mm -hmm. camp of of nonviolence, and uh, uh, either one of you could elaborate on what exactly is mystical nonviolence, because it seems like those two words that you'd never you'd never put yeah, together, you right. know? Yeah, it has yeah. So it has to do with so one of the things that that we try to do with the book is show the ways in which nonviolence doesn't just have to do with uh, the ways we think about international politics or the way that we think about internal political processes or uh, economics or, it, I mean, it has to do with all these things, but it also has to do with our, our relation to God. Um, and so this, this, this stream of the mystical nonviolence really kind of gets at that. That nonviolence is this all-encompassing tradition, which really has to do with the whole of what it is to be a human, right? It has to do with our external and internal relationships it has to do with our intimate partners. It has to do with our church, how we, how we engage with one another in church. It has to do with how we pray. Um, and so the figures in that, in that stream, uh, particularly Howard Thurman, there's some others that, that might be like Henry Nowen shows up in there. Uh, Thomas Merton. These are all figures who talked about prayer as a way of encountering God. And when we encounter God, it requires us to kind of open our hands, not only to God, but to, to the world as well. 
that we can't, in the same way that we don't approach God as um, demanding things from God, but receiving from God. So that that life of prayer, uh, it causes us then to open our hands to the world and to receive from God in the world as well. And so we begin to engage the world in a nonviolent posture as a as a direct as directly implicated by our life of prayer. Um, so, and this is where there's more interesting connections because studying liberationist um, thought many of them are drawing from deep wellsprings of mystical um, lives of prayer um, in the Catholic tradition in particular. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we think of mysticism, sort of the caricature is like the, the monk who's cloistered off somewhere and the liberationist, the caricature is kind of the, you know, Che Guevara shirt wearing like <laughs> yep, yep. militant or whatever. But really, uh, I think at its best, the life of prayer flows into a life of action. And so mm -hmm. that might be another interesting connection. I don't even know if we really tease that out in the book, but that might be. I don't know. That, I don't know that we do. So I really like that you both highlighted that, that like prayer really is a, a mystical practice. Like I think because we're so absorbed you know it, we're so used to it that mm -hmm. we we forget just how weird it is you know you're you're sitting there you're closing your eyes and you're communicating with the creator of the universe you know <laughs> like it, it doesn't get much more mystical than that you know more mysterious mm -hmm. than that so would the people in this stream of mystical christian nonviolence would they believe that god is um completely non-violent that like um or would they uh, take a more nuanced approach there do you know yeah i think it depends on the figure there's some who are going to say something like that non-violent uh non-violence or non-violent practice emerges from a life of prayer there are going to be some who make a bit bolder claim to say that god is intrinsically non-violent um, I take those to be two different kinds of claims, mm. uh, but it depends, again, it kind of depends. And we kind of, I get into, we get into some of those, those disagreements within the chapter, uh, depending on how far they want to push that argument. Mm. Um, there's a, there's a figure that we address named John Deere. He's a, a contemporary Catholic priest, um, has written extensively and he kind of, he makes the stronger claim that God is intrinsically nonviolent. And there's others uh, who have kind of followed his lead on that. Um, I find I find Thurman a bit more compelling on this to say that the encounter with God, it it changes us and that it requires us to kind of unhand, unhand our under our understanding of God and to kind of to embrace the mystery that is God. And in doing so, we learn how to un like to to open our hands to the world. So that that seems to me to be a better a better approach. Hmm. That's my take. Other readers can, I mean, again, part of the part of the part of putting all of this into the book, uh, including all of the disagreements, is that readers can kind of make begin to make their own judgments. Um, we're trying to just kind of lay out what's what's actually there, though. And of course, probably the most famous contemporary Christian uh, uh, pacifist, uh, Greg Boyd, would take the the stronger position. He would say that God, yeah, 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 like. Yeah. He's going to like, take a stronger position. Yeah, which is, uh, it's it's interesting. You know, I I, I love listening to to his stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. Probably the reform people on the who listen to this are uh, throwing their computer at a wall presently when they hear <laughs> that. But, but um, <laughs> you know, I find it very interesting. Um, but um, we're coming towards the end of our time here. But I'd love to know um, 
just from both of you, uh, which which core framework that you explore in the book uh, for understanding nonviolence uh, as a Christian uh, did you reg- resonate with most personally? Yeah, I'm trying to think about that. Um, you know, there's always the uh, authorial distance, you know, as you're like uh, researching these people and kind of putting them in categories to feel like you're above, you know, having to make those kinds of valuative judgments. Um, But definitely in working on the chapters, there were some that maybe resonated with me in surprising ways. So I think prior to doing any research for this book, just which approach would have maybe initially drawn me into the stream of Christian nonviolence probably would have been the first chapter, the nonviolence of Christian discipleship, where they tend to speak in the more biblical vernacular. And it's kind of this, um, in some ways, almost heroic sense of we're following in the way of Jesus and taking up our cross and stuff. And so in some ways that resonates with kind of this um, desire to have this significance in life and, and, uh, but I've seen some problems with that view, um, in working on this book, we didn't necessarily talk a whole lot about some of the problematic figures, but one of the main advocates of that view, John Howard Yoder, um, late in his life. And then after his death, um, things were exposed about his own personal life and interaction with colleagues and students where he had a history of sexualized violence. And so even though he is holding up this way of Jesus that he's calling all of us to follow kind of in obedience or discipleship, there's these major, um, I don't even know if we can call them blind spots, but problematic areas. And so working on that last chapter on Christian anti-violence, I think I um, was drawn to that as corrective to my own thinking. Mm. And I still have a lot of work to do in that area. Um, but I think in terms of kind of throughout the course of working on the book, what kind of caused me to step back and be most self-reflective was probably that last chapter. Uh Mm -hmm. Especially in light of the current world, you know, all the me too and that sort of thing it's uh, exactly. very appropriate yeah right yeah like david i think i was probably in before before starting this book would probably be drawn most to the the discipleship chapter just because that's that's the way that the both david and i were were drawn into this to begin with um i think that the most challenging chapter for me well, two, one, well, the, the, the chapter that I, the, I think was challenging for me the most was um, the mysticism chapter, in part because it, it, it reminds me that the, the commitment to nonviolence is not only the things which, the actions which I take, but also um, it calls me to a, a life of prayer and to connect the dots between my life of prayer and uh, just to see the way in which, uh, as, as I referenced with the, with the King uh, essay from Birmingham that there's a deep connection between prayer and our life in the world. And uh, particularly the, the moral actions that we can take and the ways in which those are sustained in the world are, I think in some ways impossible for the Christian apart from prayer. So Mm. um, that was the most, I think the most challenging chapter for me. Mm. 
Mm. Do do either of you think that some of the the figures that you cover in the book they perhaps they got caught up too much in the politics of the of the question without you know spending enough time on the the spiritual aspect of the question? Well, I I don't want to keep piling on, but I think Yoder, uh, you know, his most well-known book is The Politics of Jesus. And I think there is this notion that he emphasized in some ways as a corrective to earlier generations of his own Mennonite tradition. He emphasized the political to the extent that um, maybe it, it diminished those more spiritual aspects of the faith that that Miles was talking about. Um, uh, I'm maybe not as closely familiar with some of the other people as individuals that we wrote about. So it's hard for me to kind of make that judgment from a distance. Um, but I, I do think the question is apt because nonviolence can become very reduced to kind of tactical maneuvers of of ways of getting what you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, right. Yeah, that's uh, right. And I mean, but the flip side is also true that it can become sort of completely removed from action in the world. So I think it's, it has to be both to be kind of the full expression of faithfulness, maybe. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. I'll just echo, I'll just amen to what David, what David just said. It's It's been great to to speak to to both of you and to, hear your your perspectives and uh, i'm sure um i'm sure the audience will be uh lining up with the credit cards to <laughs> obviously that that's the most important thing you know <laughs> no no and um, but but really it has been it has been great to 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 speak to both of you and uh thanks for elucidating uh about uh, this this book it's been fun yeah thanks for having us on well thank you for having us on patrick